As Jacob and his family make their way to Egypt, they make a stop in Beersheba, where Jacob offers sacrifices to God. Now, Beersheba is a significant place for Jacob because of both his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. When Abraham and Sarah were living in the land of the Philistines, Abraham digs a well there that's seized by one of the king's servants. So Abraham speaks to the king about this, and the two men make a covenant, and the well is returned to Abraham. And Abraham ends up planting a tree there and prays and worships God in that location. Beersheba is a place where Abraham was reminded of God's blessing and God's provision in his life. And his son Isaac will also settle there in his life and have a confrontation with the king as well. As Isaac's crops and his livestock are multiplying, the king asks Isaac to move because the Philistines were growing envious of him. Well, as Isaac moves, he ends up redigging his father's wells, and again, water flows from them. And just like in his father's life, the Philistines claim the water is theirs. So Isaac and his servants go and dig another well, and again, it yields water. And again, the people fight over it, and so they dig a third well, and they're finally left alone. And Isaac then goes to Beersheba, and God appears to Isaac there and reassures him that he's going to be blessed with land and children. And in response, Isaac builds an altar there and prays and worships God just like his father had. So it's in the same location, Beersheba, that Jacob stops to pray and to sacrifice to God. It's a significant place of remembrance, a historic location where God's people have worshipped him following a time of blessing. And we know locations are important. They call to mind people and moments from our past that shape us today. If you're ever in Atlanta and you find yourself on Jackson Street, you can visit Ebenezer Baptist Church where Martin Luther King Jr. served as the pastor. And as you stand in that place, you remember the significance that that building had during the civil rights movement. If you visit China and you find yourself in Tiananmen Square, you're reminded of the June 4th movement and the protests that took place there 30 years ago. Or if you visit downtown New York City, you can see the World Trade Center Memorial and you're immediately reminded of 9-11. But then there are those places with personal significance for you. And within those places are those specifically related to your relationship with God. Maybe it's your dedicated place to pray in your home or a retreat center where you had a powerful encounter with God. And though those locations might not appear to be special to an onlooker, to you they're infused with meaning because God has met with you there in a special way. Well, Beersheba is a place like that for Jacob and for his family. And as he stops there to worship and offer sacrifices, God appears to him in a vision at night. And as God approaches Jacob, he says his name twice. Now, this is not something that happens a lot in scripture, so we need to pay attention when God speaks in this way. It was when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac that God called Abraham's name twice and interceded by providing a ram for Abraham to sacrifice. At a time when Abraham was facing a huge test of his faith, God called his name twice and provided the sacrifice for him. God says Moses' name twice when he appears to him in the burning bush and sends him to Egypt to save his people. And he calls to Samuel twice in the temple before telling him what's going to come of Eli's family. When God says your name twice, it's significant. 
here Jacob is about to leave his home. And I'm sure he was experiencing fear and anxiety about the journey. He was leaving everything that was familiar to him. And God comes to him and says, Jacob, Jacob. And as he's saying this name, his name not but twice, he's bringing Jacob words of comfort and reassurance. Think about what's going on in Jacob's life. First, we know that Jacob was anxious before on big journeys because before returning home to reunite with Esau, he seeks God and he asks God to deliver him from his brother out of fear of what he had done to Esau in the past. And second, when his father Isaac experienced famine in the land, God specifically told Isaac not to go to Egypt, but to remain where he was. So Jacob is likely seeking God's blessing and assurance before acting on his desire to reunite with Joseph. And God comes to Jacob and he speaks words of reassurance. God reminds Jacob that he's the same God that cared for his grandfather and father before him. When he says, I am the God of your father. And he tells him not to fear going to Egypt because he will go down with him and bring him back. And he promises that Joseph will be the one to close his eyes when he dies. Jacob sees God and God answers him. And in the midst of the uncertainty he faces, God tells him to go and promises to lead him the entire way. I honestly can't think of a more timely word for us this morning in the midst of the season we find ourselves in. We're in unfamiliar territory in so many ways. Some of us are trying to find work. Some of us are trying to reopen our businesses or return to work. We're trying to think about making systemic changes to public policies with the goal of equality for black men and women in our country. We're in the yellow phase of a pandemic and soon we're gonna be in the green phase and it's an uncertain time. We're in many ways leaving Canaan. We're leaving what we know and what's been safe and familiar in our lives and we're being called by God to Egypt. We just don't really know what life's gonna look like in the new normal. And the same words God spoke to Jacob thousands of years ago, he speaks to each of us this morning. He says, I am the God of your father. Don't be afraid. I will go down with you into this next phase of life and I'll bring you up again to myself. Though we're living in a season of great changes, God remains the same. He's the God of Abraham and Jacob, and he's our God. He doesn't want us to be fearful, but he's with us now and will be with us tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And just as we see God pursue Jacob and comfort him, we can also learn from Jacob what we should do with our uncertainties, with our fears, with our lives. Like Jacob, let's seek God in worship and in prayer and ask him to guide us and lead us every step of the way. We're to pray for spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear what God is calling us to do. God always meets us and he does it in so many different ways. He does it when we gather to hear his word preached through the scriptures. He does it when we worship and praise him. He does it through the godly counsel of our brothers and sisters in the church. And he does it through prayer. It's only in seeking God and praying and asking for his guidance that we can protect ourselves from all of the competing voices that surround us right now. We have our own fears and anxieties that are whispering in our hearts throughout the day. We have the news reporters and health organizations that change their advice daily. Think about the World Health Organization this week. Asymptomatic people very rarely spread the virus. The next day, 
40% of the spread happens from asymptomatic people. We have politicians saying things. We have family members telling us things. We need God's voice to drown out all of these competing voices as we head into Egypt. And as we fight for justice for black men and women in this country, we need God's voice and God's word and God's spirit to be working in and through us because this issue is a spiritual one. We can't face what's next without God showing us the way. I've been reading a book written by one of my Westminster professors about the life of Francis Schaeffer. He was a native of Germantown in Philly, and he and his wife Edith started an evangelistic ministry in Switzerland called Labrie. And for years, they welcomed people into their home and created a space where people could explore Christianity. But what I didn't know was how significant prayer was in shaping their ministry, especially in its earliest days. In the earliest days of Labrie, they refused to ask for money. They refused to ask for people to come and help by serving alongside them. Instead, they brought it all to God in prayer, asking him to provide for them. And they saw God come to them and answer their prayers time and time again in powerful ways. When they needed thousands of dollars in order to move to purchase their home, to deal with the legal fees associated with ministering freely as Americans in a foreign place, people time and time again came to their aid, sending checks for just the right amounts of money that perfectly matched what they needed to continue their work. And as I read about their prayer life, I was reminded of the missionary Hudson Taylor, who did work in China, and George Mueller, who did ministry in England, and the utter dependence upon prayer that these men had, praying and trusting God to act in their lives over and over again. Jacob goes to worship and sacrifice to God to seek him out, and God meets him in a powerful way. And every day that passes in my life, I become more and more convinced just how vital prayer is to our lives as Christians. It's in prayer that I experience God's reassurance and comfort. It's in prayer that God sometimes gives me ideas or places particular people on my heart to pray for, to reach out to. Pete Eck, one of the missionaries from Atlantic City in April, posted on Facebook this intense post. This is back in April. And it said, even a desire to return to normalcy can be a dangerous idol. Lord, work in us what is pleasing to you in the here and now and not miss what you have for us. That's an insane prayer, but it reveals a heart that's being shaped by God's will and desire for his life and not his own desires. It reveals how God changes us when we pray. If we're gonna thrive in our Christian life, if we're gonna thrive in Egypt, we need to be a praying people. Research has shown that it takes on average 66 days to develop a new habit. And God provided us with that much time over the past couple of months during this stay-at-home order. And my hope is that it's been a time when we've all grown in prayer. And if you haven't, you don't need a pandemic to grow in any discipline. So I encourage you to continue to develop your prayer life. We need God's wisdom and prayer as a part of the journey of our growth. So first we see in our text that while God meets us in many different ways, we must always remember that he always meets us. He's never silent. He gives us his word, his people, his presence. And it's God's reassuring presence that will remain with us in the midst of fear and uncertainty. As we move through the text from verses 5 to 27, we have 23 verses that list all of Jacob's family that ended up in Egypt with him. 
And there are 23 verses that tend to we tend to skip over, right, when we're trying to read the Bible in a year. It's like, there goes that list of names. Flip. And for all of you who were feeling a little frustrated with me for reading those verses this morning, I totally get it. But God put these verses in the Bible for a reason. And think of it this way, at least you weren't home forced to read it on your own. And why are these verses here? Well, we're given a glimpse of the unfolding of God's work of creating a people for himself. Think about this for a second. Abraham dies having only one child with his wife, Sarah, Isaac, a man who's presented with the promise of descendants and land, one son. And God promises it, right? He says, you're going to have as many offspring as the stars in the sky, the sands on the seashore. Then Isaac goes on to have how many children? Two, Jacob and Esau. And it's through Jacob whom the promise will continue through. And he has 12 sons. And now as Jacob and his family pack and make their way back to Egypt, there are 70 people in his family going with him on the journey. When I was preparing this passage and seeing the growth of Abraham's descendants, it made me think of another Abraham, Courtney's grandfather. As a young man, he was successfully running his own drywall business in Michigan that was growing and starting to make a lot of money. And he felt called by God to go on missions. And specifically, he felt called to go to Mexico. Forget the fact that he and his wife didn't speak Spanish and that they were expecting their fifth child. They felt the call and he left a growing business and they up and moved to Mexico. And there, Courtney's grandparents had three more children and served on the mission field for 30 years. All of their children married and had kids, and now their children's kids are having kids. 31 grandchildren and 20 great-grandchildren. This is the most recent photo. And when you look at this group, you see a family that began with two people. Today, several of Abe's sons serve as elders in churches. Some of his daughters and granddaughters married to pastors like me. Some of them married educators at Christian schools like Courtney's mom. Their grandchildren are also living out their faith like Courtney's brother who works for World Vision. From two to 10 with their eight children to today and a family known by all of their neighbors as followers of Christ. God's faithfulness from generation to generation of the Marcus family is powerful to witness. And it's worth taking some time to think about your own family today. Some of you are children of pastors who've now had children of your own growing up in the church. Some of you have large families and you can see for generations God's hand on your family. Some of you are the first in your family to believe in Christ. And you've seen a pattern of unbelief broken with your conversion and can now begin to pray and see how God may bring others from your family to faith as well as those who come after you. It's powerful. It's powerful to see God's hand guiding people to himself over the course of history. One commentator noted that family trees are boring to read unless they're your own. Well, if you're a believer today, this list is part of your spiritual family. These really are your brothers and sisters from the past. From one to two to 12 to 70, God's chosen people are slowly growing in number. And we see his promise unfolding as we read this list of names. And it's important to remember that Abraham didn't live to see any of this. And yet God's promise to him remains true. 
And for all of us who have faith in Christ, this is a record for our family tree as well. What began with one man from Ur of the Chaldeans moving to Canaan now includes people from every corner of the globe. And you're now part of that long list of people. What a remarkable thing to reflect on this morning. God's plan for his people is unfolding today as well. He's still drawing people to himself through the work of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our passage ends with the reunion that we've been waiting for since Joseph's brothers first sold him into slavery in chapter 37. And as Jacob and Joseph embrace, we see God doing what seemed to be impossible for all the people involved. For Jacob and his sons, Joseph was long presumed dead. But as Pastor Tom preached last week, God had brought Joseph to Egypt in order to save his people. And now a fractured family is restored. We see in this meeting between father and son a glimpse of what God alone is capable of doing. Taking a broken family and restoring them. Taking a family on the brink of starvation and bringing them to a land flowing with milk and honey where they're going to be able to thrive as shepherds. We see God's rule over the nations as he's taken a foreigner, sold into slavery, and made him lord over the people and control the food and the resources of Egypt that's going to save God's people from starvation. We see in this moment a glimpse of God's salvation. God saving a people, God mending a broken family, God ruling over the nations, God bringing a son presumed dead and bringing him back to life. We see our God bringing blessings out of suffering. And it's not hard to see how sweet this reunion is given the season we've been in. Some of us have not seen our parents in months. Some of us live minutes away from them and have not been able to get close to them, have not been able to embrace them since March. And you long for that moment. You long for that time to come when you can see them face to face, when you can hug them and weep on their shoulders. It's going to be really sweet when it happens. And we're talking about three months. Jacob and Joseph were separated for decades. This is an overwhelmingly sweet blessing. This is, this is a taste of the good life. This is a taste of the way things ought to be all the time. And in this moment, we're reminded of something we see throughout scripture. The blessings that God brings into our lives always make the sufferings pale in comparison. The blessings of our salvation will outweigh all of our heartaches and all the sufferings we'll experience in our lifetime. Look at what Jacob says to Joseph in verse 30. Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. The blessing that God has given Jacob of seeing his long-lost son is so sweet, so wonderful, that he's content to leave the earth in the wake of receiving it. Many years later, another man will also hold a child, this one not his own, and say similar words. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that a righteous and devout man named Simeon takes the baby Jesus into his arms and says, you may now dismiss your servant to peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. God had revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had laid eyes on the Lord's Messiah. And in the temple courts, as Mary and Joseph bring him to fulfill the demands of the law, God's promise to Simeon is fulfilled. God promised Jacob his son would be the one to close his eyes, that Joseph, who will deliver his family and his people from starvation, 
would be the one that he would see again. For Jacob, it's enough. But Simeon's eyes rest on the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who will bring the power of sin and death to end. Simeon lays eyes on the one who would deliver God's people once and for all, not from a temporary threat, but from the only threat that stretched all the way from the Garden of Eden to our present moment. Joseph was chosen by God to save food that would keep the people from death. But Jesus is the bread of life. What does he say in the Gospel of John? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus, who participated in the creation of the world, is the one who satisfies us, not just in the midst of a fruit shortage, but for all time. And because as our maker, he alone sustains us, he alone gives us life. He alone has the power to raise us up and give us new life in him. Jesus feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. He follows the law perfectly. He raises the dead and forgives sinners. And despite his perfect life, despite meeting all the needs of the people who came to him, he's sent to the cross. And on the cross, he cries out to his father two times, my God, my God. And rather than receive words of comfort, like those that God spoke to Jacob on his way to Egypt, Jesus is met with silence. It came with carrying our sins upon his shoulders. But in bearing our sins, Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. And when he's raised from the dead three days later, he's vindicated as the son of God who defeated the enemies of sin and death. Because of Jesus, all who trust in him will never die. It means the sweet blessings we experience now will pale in comparison to what await us in the future. In this morning's text, Jacob and his family are reminded that no situation is beyond hope when God is involved, and the same remains true for us today. Jacob and his family had no idea the larger work God was doing until this moment, and we don't know either, but we know that in Christ, God is reconciling a broken world and a sinful people to himself. We know that God promises all of our circumstances will work out in the end for our good, all of them, not some. And so we're called to lean into God, to pray for strength to persevere, to pray for miracles, to pray for God to continue to do the work of renewing all things, both through us and through his own intervention. Let's continue to desire for sinners to come to repentance, for family members and friends to be saved, for boldness and confidence as we move into a new world, for systemic injustices to be made right, only in Christ are these things made possible.